class. It was my hope this morning to be teaching from the chapel where we've got all of the little tools we've been using. The, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, the mercy seat, the model of the tabernacle, because I need them today, but I don't have them. We had planned on being back home, but uh, we we're going to have to teach remote because of a variety of circumstances today. So I'm coming to you remotely, but I've got pictures in the PowerPoint that hopefully will help us. And Brent Johnson's a master at weaving all of this together. So let's continue on our journey on the story on the road to Emmaus. And what we've really tried to do is what Jesus tried to do with those two followers of his back 2,000 years ago almost. And that is, go back even another 2,000 years into Scripture so that we can see more clearly those images of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, those images were there, but, but we need to put on some glasses. And those glasses of the New Testament and of Jesus will help us better focus, see with greater clarity understand more fully, down to small little details that we might have missed otherwise. So we'll start with the fuzzy. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And I've put the, the this is the, uh, I saw uh, Adonai, the Lord, and he's sitting, Yeshev, if you sit Shiva uh, in a Jewish funeral, same word, Shiva, Yeshev, um, upon the throne, high, Ram, and lifted up, Nasa, Nisa. Now, that's what Isaiah sees. And Isaiah not only sees the Lord in that situation, but some incredible events unfold. And I want to look at those with you, but we're going to need to do it in three senses. First, I want to put it into a historical context. I want you to see the history behind it. Then second, we'll look in a little more detail at the actual vision and experience that Isaiah had. And then third, we're going to understand how to find Jesus Christ in that picture, in that story, in that Old Testament prophetic word. So let's do that. Let's start with the context. Now, the context is... That very first verse, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah was an interesting king. His dad wasn't a bad guy. He was the king of Judah, which was the lower part of the promised land. The upper part became Samaria, Israel, different names. But Judah, that lower part that was ruled from Jerusalem. And King Uzziah was a good king. But his daddy got, um, got kind of fouled up a little bit. He was a good guy, but he got kind of fouled up a little bit. Went out to war thinking he was something special with Israel and, and lost. And, and it did not end well for him. So when his dad died, King Uzziah takes the throne. And he takes the throne at the age of 16. Now think of someone you know who's 16. Or some... If, if, Many of you used to be 16. Maybe go back into your mind. He was a 16-year-old, and he had oversight over him as the king of Judah. And he had good oversight. And so he did a good job as king. 
the chronicler, uh, the, in, in Chronicles, Second Chronicles says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Zechariah is just two Hebrew words put together. It means God remembers. He set himself to seek God in the days of the prophet who helps people remember God who instructed him, the prophet, instructed the young king in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And prosper he did. He whipped the Philistines back and forth, took his armies and whipped the Amorites. His fame stretched all the way down to Egypt. He, he raised a huge army. He had massive building projects. He had inventions. He was bringing state-of-the-art ideas to military fighting. He was really something special as a king. And as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. The chronicler goes on to say, His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. Here's a young man who's made king, who rules for 52 years. And he did great as long as he was leaning on the Lord and looking to the Lord. In fact, he did so great that he figured he didn't need the Lord anymore. He was strong. And that was his downfall. Because when he grew strong, he grew proud. Proud means, look what I've done. I'm important. I'm special. I've accomplished. And that became his destruction. And it's a really interesting story how this unfolded. The chronicler explains that King Uzziah entered the temple to offer incense. And he was struck with leprosy that lasted until he died. Now, the temple, we've not talked about too much in this last series, except to say that it was just a physical, permanent building, incredibly done, built by Solomon, to replace the tabernacle, which was the tented place of worship of God, when the Israelites were the wanderers. But once they had settled the promised land, and once they had established a monarchy, not King Saul, David wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, he'd shed too much blood. So it was left for Solomon to build. And Solomon built a temple, but it was still based upon all of the important elements that God had set out for Moses, telling him, build it precisely like this. Instead of this tinted area, a permanent structure was built, but it had the same three compartments. It had the opening area. It had the holy area where you had the candlesticks and the bread of the presence and you had the incense altar. And then it had the holy of holies where only the high priest could go and only he was allowed to go once a year. By the way, my wife is always quick to remind me, King Uzziah is also called Azariah. His father was Amaziah. 
they had ayahs out the wazoo, which is an abbreviation actually of Yahweh and, and uh, is a common name for followers of Yahweh at that time, the Yah part at the end of a name. This is a holy, reverent place, only open to the Le Levitical priests. And yet, the proud king decides he wants to go in and lead worship. And he comes into the outer court. And, and the priests are saying, no, no, no. You can't do this. It doesn't matter how much you think God has shown you favor. He's shown you favor to do what you're called to do for him. And you're not called to be a priest. And you don't need to blur that line. This is God's call, not yours. You may be king, but there is a king of kings. And that's not you. But they don't stop him there. King Uzziah goes all the way in and grabs the incense, which is put just right before the doorway, the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And he's getting ready to go offer incense to the Lord. And 70 valiant men of honor, priests, come and try to stop him and to get him out. And in the process of them doing that, God strikes him with leprosy right there, dead on, uh, not dead, but leprosy on the spot. And realizing what he's done, the king is bamoosed out of there, but he has leprosy until the day he dies. And in a sense, steps off the throne and his son sort of takes over because you can't hang around the leprous king. So he has this leprosy until the day he dies. And that was the year that's on Isaiah's mind because Isaiah is a prophet to him, the voice of God to him. And that's fresh on his mind. Isaiah is when he relays this vision of Isaiah 6. And so let's look at the vision for just a moment. The vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we need to remember what we've been talking about for the last four or five, six weeks, that the, the temple as built, the tabernacle as built and as revealed, was an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality on many different levels. And that Holy of Holies room that we talked about, that Holy of Holies room where the high priest could only come once a year was the room that had the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered by the mercy seat, the seat of atonement. And above that, or as part of that, are the, the angels, the cherubim, and that is God's throne as an earthly symbol of God having a throne upon the angels in the heavenlies. So Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now that verse tells us three things about God, and let's look at them. Number one, God is sitting upon a throne. He is a ruler. There is a throne. It is being sat upon by God, who is the ruler. Second thing we know. He is high and lifted up. 
He is not common. He's not ordinary. He's not earthly. He's not bound. He is high and lifted up. And the third thing that Isaiah realized is the train of his robe filled the temple. Train is a reference to the hem, uh, the, the bottom of his garment. And it filled the temple. In other words, no room for anyone on the throne or in the throne room other than God. Now that you're going to find out there are angels as well that are worshiping him, but they're fluttering about, if you will. That throne room is filled by God. This train of his robe filling the temple speaks of his royalty. It speaks of his majesty, but it also indicates only he is worshiped on the throne. And that's the vision that Isaiah has that says those three things about God. Now, his vision also tells us three things about the angelic worship. I told you angels were there. Here's what it says. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, this tells us three things about the angelic worship. Because it continues... He called, one angel calls out to another and says, holy, holy, holy. Get that threefold holy. John Calvin, early church fathers, a number of different scholars believe that the three is a reference to the Trinity. The holiness of God in three parts. But three is also a complete spiritual number, symbolically. And so it's, it's, uh, 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 if it's doing that duty, it's doing it as double duty in a sense. But completely holy, 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 three holies, completely holy, or Trinitarianly completely holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Hebrew word Kadesh, and it means uh, uh, unlike anything else in a good way. And that's God. He's holy. Holy, holy. And the second thing the angelic worship tells us is that God is the Lord of hosts. And that means that he's the Lord, he's the ruler, he's the God of, of vast numbers of people, things, items, everything. He is the Lord of hosts. And the third thing that the angelic worship tells us is that the whole earth is full of his glory. God wasn't just the God of the little mountain tribe like we talked about in the Ezekiel lesson last week. God wasn't just a, tri a, a, a tribal God for Israel or Judah. God's glory is found in the whole earth, all of the earth. He is God over all. Now, I also want us to see three things about Isaiah's reaction. So this happens. In the year that King Uzziah dies, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and he sees the, the, the angels, the seraphim, are, are impressive creatures, and those creatures are worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And what does Isaiah do? Well, he tells us, I said, woe is me. 
Woe in Hebrew is oi. Li uh, is to me. So it's uh, woe to me. Oi li. For I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the, Lord, the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, look first at the three things about this I want to bring out. First, see his confession. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. And he's supposed to be a prophet for God. He's supposed to be the mouth of God. When he speaks, he says things in Hebrew, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So when he speaks, his mouth is supposed to be the mouth of the Lord. He says, "How I'm supposed to be the mouth of the Lord, but I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. They're all unclean too. And his concern is, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, why does that tie together? Go back to when this was happening. This is in the year that King Uzziah died. And Uzziah got as far as the altar of incense, and he got struck with leprosy. But Isaiah is brought all the way in to the true presence of the living God in the Holy of Holies, where he's got no right to be. He bypasses where the king went, and he finds himself there, and he's holy, holy, holy. He's very concerned with this. Understandably so. If going this far got King Uzziah in trouble, what about poor Isaiah? He's where he does not belong in the presence of an almighty God when he is a sinner with unatoned sin. And so he confesses that. And when he confesses it, atonement happens. Here's the passage. One of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal he'd taken with tongs from the altar. That's our little picture, tongs, burning coal. And he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, this is massive. This is, there is an altar before God in heaven. This is the heavenly reality. And on that altar of sacrifice, a coal is taken and it is touched upon the lips of Isaiah. And there is atonement. Now remember, in the earthly shadow of this heavenly reality, you had not just the Ark of the Covenant, which is where we live under law and, and God's provision and care, but it's covered by a mercy seat or a, a, a lid of atonement, an atonement lid. And it's upon that lid where the blood of the sacrifices would be put. And the heavenly reality that Isaiah is experiencing is one where from God's altar, the sacrifice that was satisfactory to atone for sin comes, and from that altar is the atonement for Isaiah, the cleansing. 
if you will. There are so many stories that this references in the Old Testament and in the New. This harkens back, as I want to talk next week, about Abraham when he's called to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And God says at the last minute, no, no, no. God says, I will provide the sacrifice. And God does with his son. Abraham killing his son really wouldn't have atoned for any sin. But boy, there was a profound prophetic word there, as we'll discuss next week. Because God gives his son to atone for sin, and that's a true atonement. Jesus truly accomplishes paying in full the debt for my sin and your sin and Isaiah's sin and, and the sins of the world. And that touching of the sacrifice, the sacrificial altar, there is atonement. Third thing to notice here. That's when God commissions Isaiah. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who's going to go for us? And then I said, Oh, over here. Here I am. Send me. God said, Go. And that's fantastic. Now, we put this into context. We've now studied the vision with the context. And what I'd like to do before we end is look at Jesus Christ in this picture. So in John chapter 12, John talks about Jesus going in and going into a synagogue and grabbing the scroll and read from Isaiah. And when Jesus read a prophetic word from Isaiah, Jesus said, this is being fulfilled in your midst today. And the people grumbled and complained because this is just Jesus. Who does he think he is? And Jesus and John, as he tells this story, recognize Jesus is the presence in Isaiah. Because the Isaiah passage itself continues after God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, hey, send me. God talks about how, okay, but you're going to be going and these are going to be people with ears to hear, but they don't hear. And they don't see with their eyes, even though they can see. And Jesus quotes that passage, and John does, in John 12. And John says this, Isaiah said these things in Isaiah chapter 6. Because he saw Jesus' glory. Isaiah was seeing the glory of Jesus as God. He saw Jesus' glory. And he spoke of Jesus. Now, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, did believe in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Whew. I mean, this is one of those moments. I don't know if you do this or not. I get on YouTube occasionally and I watch these videos of the new generation of people reacting to music of my generation. So you can find these people who've never heard the Righteous Brothers sing Unchained Melody. 
and they'll listen to it. And I mean, their eyes get big and they're just like, some of them are crying. I mean, it's just like, oh my heavens, this music existed in 1965? And, and, and sometimes when you watch those videos, they just have to pause the video in the middle. In the middle of listening to Righteous Brothers, Unchained Melody. They'll stop it. Because they just got to compose themselves and catch their breath and appreciate what just happened. I feel like doing that when I read this passage. Many of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was God. Many of them, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. Do we, I mean, hit the pause button. For fear I don't even know the names of those Pharisees. How silly does it look to someone 2,000 years later that, that, that a, a person got to experience the presence of God incarnate on earth, of Jesus, the Holy One, to hear Jesus one-to-one -one preach and speak and explain the scriptures. And instead of confessing this, Jesus is Lord and holding on to him and embracing it and letting eternity testify to their, their, their response, their love, their compassion, the awe. They, they don't want to because some unnamed Pharisees that we'll never know the name of or who they were might have shunned them. Very different reaction than Isaiah. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I just got to pause the video in that sense, like the YouTube video, and just absorb that for a moment. Lord, to any extent in my life that I love the glory of man more than the glory that comes from you, tear that away. That's, that's, that's worthless. That's what Paul calls garbage and rubbish in Philippians. Compared to the surpassing value of knowing God and being called and working for God? Okay, so Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of Jesus. We're back on track here. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the three things that we saw that Isaiah said about God and the three things about Jesus that correspond. First, Isaiah said he's seated on the throne. He sees the Lord high and seated on a throne, high and exalted, and he's the only God being worshipped. The train of his garment fills the temple. No room for anybody else to be worshipped in there. And yet... We know that Jesus is seated on the throne. Ephesians 1.20, Jesus is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. God seated on the throne is Jesus seated on the throne. High and exalted, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that God has highly exalted Jesus. And bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. And this isn't something new. 
I have some dear friends who watch this. In fact, one of them is a Jehovah's Witness. And one of the things that I always try and impress my friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a high view of Jesus, but they don't view Jesus as Jehovah God, even though the scripture says that he is in some mystical Trinitarian way. But one of the verses that they always struggle to explain to me is what Paul says here. That God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. If you continue to read that verse, it says of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So Jesus has a name above every name. Does that mean Jesus' name is above Jehovah's? No, because Jesus and Jehovah are one. And no one has a name above the name of Jesus slash Jehovah slash Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the one God expressed in three persons. So God's highly exalted Jesus. God is high and exalted. Jesus is high and exalted, one and the same. And then the third, only Jesus is worshiped just as only God is worshiped. Philippians, Paul continues, he says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So in heaven, they bow and they worship Jesus and confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord in Hebrew is Adonai. If you go back and read Isaiah 6, it doesn't say, I saw Jehovah high and lifted up. It says, I saw the Lord, Adonai. Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jehovah. So we see in Isaiah 6 that vision is one that reveals Jesus. Now, there were three things we talked about with the angelic worship also in Isaiah 6. The holy, holy, holy three times. The Lord of hosts whose glory fills the earth. That was the... the the, the angelic chant, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And his, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, let me tell you three things about the worship of Jesus in scripture. First of all, Jesus is also fully holy. Jesus is fully holy. Revelation 4, 8, holy, 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 three holies, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's as much about God the Father as it is about God the Son. The Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as for being the Lord of hosts, Jesus is the Lord of hosts. I've got high and exalted here. I meant Lord of hosts. Revelation 1.8, as Lord of hosts, he is high and exalted. I am, this is Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. That word Almighty in the Greek is pantokrator. Panto means all, krator means ruler. He's the ruler of everything and everyone. Jesus is the Lord of hosts, of rocks and rills, of of heavens and earths and, and, and mountains and stars and sky and sea and all the fishes and all the cattle and you and me. 
He is the Almighty. He is the Lord of heavenly hosts, of earthly possessions, of everything. He is the Lord. And then point three, his glory fills the earth. We know about Jesus, that Jesus has all glory and dominion. It says in Revelation, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus has blessing, honor, glory, and might. And it's the whole earth filled with his glory. Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so we've got those three things about angelic worship, and we've got those three things about worship of Jesus. But before we close, let's look at three things about Isaiah's reaction. First of all, Isaiah confesses himself. Woe is me, oily, for I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And then that sacrifice touches his lips with an atoning power. And God then commissions Isaiah. Now, the beauty of this expressed in Jesus is, is the glasses that allows us to read this more clearly than we ever could before, like that eye chart I gave you the video clip of earlier. You put on those glasses and you begin to see how John confesses when he sees Jesus in that, that revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There's a Greek word for worship, proskuneo, a verb, and it means to literally just put your face to the ground. Hebrew has the same word, hishtachavu. It's to put your face to the ground. He fell flat. He worshiped the Lord. Why? Because he's confessing his sin. What right do I have to truly see God? And in that confession, you have Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who touches John. And Jesus says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. You don't need to be afraid. When Jesus reaches out and touches you, there is no, no room for fear. You know, it's not just the, 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 the physical touch there, but, but do you see also in the Isaiah passage the beauty of communion? As the lips were touched with the, the, the coal from the altar, the sacrificial altar, so in communion, Jesus expressed, this bread is my body that is given, sacrificed for you. This cup is my blood that is given, sacrificed for you. And when we touch when it comes to our lips, that symbolism is richly portrayed of the atonement that we have because the body and blood of Jesus was shed on our behalf. And as people who confess their sin to God, instead of living proudly like the, the leprous king, instead of having leprosy as our reward, in humility, when we confess ourselves as sinners, we have forgiveness. The Lamb of God, sacrificed on our behalf, touches us and says, fear not, 
I'm the first and the last. And then the final thing is, Jesus even commissions John in a very parallel sense. After he touches John, he says, I want you to write these things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And John's prophetic ministry as the revelator begins with letters to seven churches and seven visions. And, 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 and we have here an incredible parallel, but it, but it doesn't end with just John and Revelation. Because the reaction that Isaiah had, let me get that passage out of the way, the reaction that Isaiah had, the reactions of things of those encountering with Jesus can be our reaction as well. Because if you've watched this video this far, you have had a glimpse, not with your physical eyes, perhaps, though they've helped with the pictures, but certainly with your mind, you've had a glimpse of the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And so the question becomes, now that you've had that encounter, what does it say about you? Is this a moment where in confession you say, I have no right to see God. I have no right to be in his presence. I've done things I never should have done. I knew better. I have deep regret. I have deep wounds. I have deep scars. Or is this the kind of thing where we're just going in thinking this is our right? This is our due. We're just in this. Get out of my way. I got this. I want to react in confession. I want to be touched by Jesus. And then I want to be about his work. And I don't ever want to grow to a point where I don't need his help because I'm strong because that's when pride is going to destroy my walk with him from being at least what it should be and could be. So if we can help you in any way on this, we get emails each week. We love them. I get to pray over people that I've never met before, and I may not meet this side of, of glory, but I will be an honor to pray for you to, 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 to email with you, Brent Johnson, uh, folks at our church, folks at our library. Um, we will all love to pray with you. I do video thoughts each day of the weekday. Uh, one of our class members puts them together on Saturday to kind of give a mashup of them. We'd love to get you on a mailing list for those if you're interested, or you can just find them on YouTube, like them and subscribe. But, but it is our goal to reach you with the message of Jesus through the wonders of the internet while we're doing biblical study living with corona. May God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. God bless you.